Welcome to the GovComs podcast, bringing you the latest insights and innovations from experts and thought leaders around the globe in government communication. Now, here is your host, David Pembroke. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to GovComs, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name is David Pembroke. Thank you for joining me. Today, we speak to an old friend, Amanda Dennett. She is an experienced communication professional specialising in digital communication strategy, crisis and issues management. She's currently the head of digital experience at the Australian War Memorial, and she has been involved in some fascinating projects at the Australian War Memorial, and we will be speaking to her about those today. Amanda is completing a Master of Research at Swinburne University of Technology, where she's researching Australian government use of media to engage with citizens, and specifically social media. She's previously worked as a media advisor, led a government video production team, and implemented social media customer service at the giant Department of Human Services here in Canberra. She's passionate about the ethics of technology, galleries, libraries, archives, and museums, known as GLAM, uh, gender equality, and also sport. Amanda has a Bachelor of Communication in Journalism and a Graduate Certificate in Professional Writing from the University of Canberra, as well as a Bachelor of Research, an Honours Research Degree from Swinburne University of Technology. She is currently completing a Master of Research at Swinburne University of Technology, where she is investigating that very point around public sector agencies and their use of social media to engage with citizens. And she is also the chapter president of the International Association of Business Communicators in Canberra. She joins me in the studio. Amanda Dennett, welcome to GovComs. Thank you very much for having me. You are lazy. (laughs) I know, I feel a bit tired after you read that out. I thought, oh, it's not all happening at the same time. (laughs) But, But... But, it, but it's a mindset, isn't it? Yeah. It's a mindset of continuing to learn, to grow, which yeah. is really the essence of what people have to take on in this day day and age, isn't it? I think so. Um, and just, I guess, uh, having worked in a number of social media teams and uh, having discussions with colleagues uh, across government communication specifically, the same kind of issues and challenges pop up. And um, it was a really good opportunity to do some research and to learn more about that and to try to discover why. Yeah. But then also in the future, you know, I'm keen to to pursue that more and work out what recommendations can we make, what benchmarks can we set that help social media teams specifically operate the best way that they can um, within a government environment. To make sure, though, that there's the discipline and the strength of the evidence base through research and how do you build that structure and process into um, communication social media teams. That's it. Um, Mm. And and as well as those frameworks, I think also giving teams um, the permission and the support that they need to get the resources and tools to deliver. And I think that can be a challenge, the passion and the willingness from teams is there, but not always the uh, understanding within the um, the organisation's context um, to to give them that that focus. So um, yeah, I'd like to bring a bit of both. But it's it's interesting though, isn't it? Because really, and this is this is everywhere. 
Um, you know, data is becoming much more um, available, much more able to be uh, uh, explored for insight. And those mathematic skills are not traditionally found in communications teams. So what's your view on how that sort of quantitative research methods can be brought together to really start to build that capability that can deliver better insights, which leads to better content. Yeah, I think it's a couple of things. So communications people aren't generally maths experts, and I'm certainly not. But um, so in my research, it it came out really that um, teams have really different approaches across government to how they measure social media uh, and its uh, effectiveness in particular. Um, Some don't do it much at all. Um, Some do it in quite a reactive way, and that comes down to being busy. Um, And others have, you know, regular sort of weekly or monthly reports that they do, but they're not always sure why they're measuring it and necessarily what it's proving. So are they measuring outputs as opposed to the insight that comes from that? They may know how many likes, views, shares, et cetera, they yep. might have, but they don't actually know the why behind it. I think that there's a mix. So that that's the case, certainly for some agencies, particularly where they're smaller. Um, the feedback that I got, yeah, was that the smaller teams are doing some of that reporting, but not necessarily having the time to do the, the why. Others are more... Um, yeah, focused, and they've got uh, a more, more developed, probably. yeah, and a more developed capability. So, in my my research, I looked at um, two case study agencies, so the Australian Taxation Office and the Department of Human Services, which is now Services Australia. Yeah, um, because they're two, two big ones. Yep, two big ones, yeah. and also two um, that have always been a bit sort of forward thinking on this uh, stuff, yep. Yep. particularly because they've got. Um, you know, a a demand from the Australian public. Um, But then uh, I also matched that with a survey of people who work in government social media teams across uh, Australia. Mm -hmm. Um, So I got 47 responses to that, so a smaller Mm -hmm. um, pool. But that ranged, so there were people that were in teams ranging from two to 25 people working on either just social or a mix of social and other types of media and communications work. Um, so those experiences really varied. So some teams do um, some measurement, but but don't always know why. Others, the bigger agencies, are, are really um, today quite skilled in understanding what what um, you know trends in the kinds of responses that they see from the public mean in terms of their business, and they make really good decisions about uh, how they change delivery, how they change messaging, um, or they use it to preempt potential issues in a way that's really powerful for their reputation. So I think we've got um, within government a broad spectrum of, yeah. of um, uh, that's capability. That's expected, I imagine. Yeah, mm. and so I guess I was hoping to, to bring that out um, and then work out how we can, uh, I guess, use the best practice to bring everyone else up. So did was your research just in Australia? Yes. Okay, and just at a federal level and a state level? Did you go down to local government as no, well? No, I, I just did um, federal only. Um, oh, so just federal only. Yeah, okay. and there's a bit of existing research in Australia on state and local government social media, but limited in federal, so that was my area of focus. Okay. What are the keys to success to have a good social media presence? What did you find? What did your research find? So it it varied again. um, And I think it depends on the aims of the agency, which, 
you know, is kind of the comms um, initial question is what are you hoping to get out of this work? But really, I think, um, you know, aligning it with aligning social media content with other forms of communication that you're doing. So, you know, it's not um, its own channel that that you need to feed separately. What you're doing there needs to be integrated with the rest of the strategy. I think having people with the appropriate skills and strategy understanding to deliver on social media work is essential. And I think, you know, we've evolved from the point of um, people, uh, you know, who are perhaps younger and, um, you know, a bit, a bit more tech savvy um, implementing this work, which was certainly the case when I first started doing this work um, sort of back in 2009 or so. Yep. Um, you know, is, hey, give that a go and see what you find out. I think we've evolved from that into um, having people that are delivering it as part of an integrated strategy. So mm-hmm. that's really key to success. Mm-hmm. Uh, as well, I think appropriately resourcing it. So some of the challenges that came out were, you know, that people might be part of a two-person team that are responsible for media, yep. social media, website publishing um, and marketing campaigns. And that's really a challenging environment for any hmm. communicator. And so that, um, you know, the social media posts sometimes become an add-on to people's work. So, um, you know, there, there were pockets of best practice that came out of the research, but um, it definitely highlighted challenges. So I guess as a next step, I'd like to look at what can we do about those challenges hmm. uh, across the board because there are limited resources available. Do you think that the leadership is coming to understand the importance of communication more and therefore thinking more about investing in it, given the critical nature that it plays in explaining policy, explaining regulation services, programs, etc. I, d- I do. It's moving? Yeah, I think it is. Um, so I didn't get to speak to any um, senior leaders as part of my research. I wanted to focus on the practitioners, but I did ask them about what what they thought their leaders uh, thought of their social media implementation to gauge that um, whether or not the permission of senior leaders uh, gave them, I guess, or empowered them to deliver differently. And it it did seem to have an impact. So people who were able to speak about having a leader that uh, enabled them to come up with different ideas and to implement things in a way that was needed and that gave them the resources to dedicate time to that were able to deliver things that on the surface seemed to be more innovative. Mm -hmm. And so that was really interesting. And some of it tells us things that we probably already know, but um, that sort of research didn't exist. Um, And so I I guess I wanted to capture that and put it on paper. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, yeah, I think that there are um, there are more lessons for other agencies that are still risk averse, but certainly um, agencies where there are leaders who prioritise um, media and social media issues as a way to get a pulse on what's happening within the community and to uh, shift a focus on services or problem solving as a result of that um, had higher performing social media teams or ha- had an envir- were creating an environment where um, more interactive social media could happen. Mm. Now, in an earlier answer, you mentioned skills. What are the critical skills that people need to have to contribute effectively to a social media team? So I asked that as well uh, in, my, in my research about... I'm doing my research. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> it's great. Um, uh, so I, I did ask that because I wanted to gauge... Um, yeah, what 
what the area of focus is, but also whether or not that's changed. Because as I as I said, you know, we have evolved from the the young person looking yeah. after social media, um, and so yeah, I I found that um, the the skill sets of people within a team really changed the approach that the team took to their social media work. And that mm-hmm. sort of sounds simple, but um, in teams where people had sort of a media background, the focus is in uh, using social media for PR type purposes. Um, there was an example through the ATO where the person who was leading the team came from a strong um, like research and data insights background. Mm-hmm. And so um, I guess related to your your previous question, you know, they had a real focus on using data to drive their content because that's the background that their leader came from. And that was a really strong sense of we need to be able to demonstrate the value that we're providing. Mm -hmm. Um, And then other teams, like for example, at human services, um, where there was a move towards reskilling people from um, call center backgrounds into answering questions on social media to do a a social media customer service function, Mm -hmm. you know, that changed the approach from being one about just communicating information and changes to one where you can actually get, receive customer service through that channel in a way that, yeah, was um, an attempt to help relieve pressure on um, call center and face-to-face demand. So, um, you know, that I was able to, um, I guess, demonstrate some of that, which again, we sort of think that makes a bit of sense, but um, you don't see it quite so clearly until you've, um, you know, spoken to those teams and and learned about their experiences. Um, But it was interesting because uh, alongside that, people really saw that um, resilience is a key um, and a key skill that people needed to have um, or, uh, and it might be more of an attribute, but that that was really important because the nature of the work and the fact that it can happen um, at any time of the day mm. uh, and that you might be dealing with issues in real time that are quite sensitive. Um, resilience was really important. Mm. Um, uh, good writing skills uh, came out as a really important um, topic and the uh, attribute and the ability to tailor complex information um, to an audience in a way that's easy to understand. And those things were, were valued more highly than an in-depth understanding of the topic, mm-hmm. um, simply because um, social media people, uh, workers need to be able to adapt in, in all environments um, and answer questions you know, on the fly. Yeah. Good judgment came back as uh, an essential skill um, and one that can be, yeah, I guess, potentially difficult to train, but the ability to identify issues early and escalate those um, within a team was really valued by people who responded to um, my survey and also the the interviews that I did. So, yeah, those rated Mm -hmm. at the top, which aren't, um, I mean, they are sort of traditional comms skills and ones that we value highly, but, yeah, it sort of didn't come down to, um, you know, ability to write creative catch you know, headlines, yeah. it, it really was um, resilience and judgment for social um, in dealing with real-time issues. It was, it's probably a couple of years ago now, but it was, there was a period of time where that issue of resilience and the and the impact of running social media was quite a hot topic, particularly yeah. in government circles, where there was that 
concern around you know the welfare of people because of the demands. So it's still a it's still quite an important issue that people are be aware. It's important that they be aware and you know be able to deal with that pressure. It is, and uh, I think part of that is the nature of um, busyness in yeah. in communication teams within government, and um, the ability to adapt quickly to changing demands. So I remember um, at Human Services a, a number of years ago um, organising some resilience training for our social media managers so um, that helped them deal with difficult issues online but also uh, about managing um, self-care and helping other, yeah. t- other teammates. And that was really important because we would deal with issues at times um, online from people who were in really difficult situations. Mm. And, um, you know, that's not necessarily something that people yeah. in comms roles are trained for. Yeah. So that was really essential. And I, um, I know now a number of um, companies, you know, in Australia that do that sort of training for yeah. online community managers um, to help them deal with that. So... Yeah, I think it it has increased over time or or awareness of it has. Um, And perhaps it's increased in instances simply because government's using it more Mm. day to day um, nowadays. So what's the future, do you think, for for social in in government communication? Where does it... Where does it sit in the mix of, you know, there's the marketing campaigns, there's the ministerial responsibilities around, you know, speeches and issues management, et cetera. Where, where does social land uh, in, in the future? Um, I think, you know, it's so, uh, you know, at the moment it's fully um, integrated and yeah. has been well adopted by government. So um, there's definitely a mix at the moment of where social media responsibility sits within an organisation. And I looked at that as part of my research. So does it align with media? Does it align with web publishing? Does it sit somewhere else? Um, and, and the answer was? Well, a mix, again. Okay. Um, rarely, so in only about 10% of cases, did people work in a team that did social media alone? So that's still quite niche and so people are doing that work alongside other teams yeah um social media but that makes sense doesn't it that you should do that it really doesn't need to live by itself elsewhere yep um and and again it sort of depends on the the um work of your agency and the aims um but yeah so social media customer service i think is an area that will continue to see growth in uh, and agencies are working out how you know what model is going to operate best for them and that's why i was keen to look at um, the ato and um, human services uh, in because they both tackle that differently Mm. so you know what are the learnings from those two experiences Mm. Uh, i do think that we're getting um, better and that we will see more evolution in the integration of um, marketing across all channels and i think at times social media still can be an add-on um, to a traditional marketing campaign. And, uh, yeah, so I think that that will continue to evolve. Mm-hmm. Um, changes to how people interact with social media content with government has changed. I think it did used to be more passive. Um, and anecdotally, I think now people are um, engaging with that content more, sharing it if it's relevant, and government's become a, um, a more credible online um, source of information 
in within the social media context. So mm. it's not really, um, you know, boring content anymore. It's content that you might need. And I think COVID's provided a great yeah. um, example of that from a health perspective that if the content is relevant to me, I'll share it, even if it's from the government. Yeah. So I think that'll continue. Because um, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the, you know, the traditional... Uh, I suppose, meme around government communication was, well, people don't want to hear from us. They don't want to engage with us. They're not interested. Yep. Where in actual fact, it's quite the opposite. They do. But the, the, the task and the challenge for the government communicator is to make sure that they communicate in a way that is relevant and useful to the audience, but also is at the highest standards of design or you know, innovation. So as it is good content that people want to take a look at. That's right. And I think also, you know, managing our own expectations as government communicators about what is meaningful to the public and what we might think of as a measure of success um, may not actually be uh, the way that people need or want to get information from us. Or um, it might sort of our own wishes for how our campaigns might run um, might overstate the willingness of the general public to, yeah. you know, engage with government online. So I guess an example of that I have from um, early work in um, dealing with students online at Human Services was providing support to them through Facebook and Twitter, um, information on accessing student payments while you're at uni. Mm -hmm. And we would find this trend of people who would follow an account, ask us some questions. How do I claim youth allowance? What do I do? This has happened. How do I report employment income? And then, uh, and we were tracking our um, interactions as well as the number of followers that we had. And we noticed that despite an increase in engagement, we didn't have any increase in followers. And we noticed people would follow us, have the interaction, get what they need, and then unfollow. So they don't want to have their um, interactions with government on their Facebook profile. Okay. You know, they use it. They used it at the time to interact with their friends, um, and so for us, that became a. You know, we had to reframe what we thought success was. So providing that support in that environment, um, in a way that helps someone, so that they don't need to call, is a good outcome. Mm -hmm. um, even if we don't retain them as um, online followers, they know that we're there if they need us. Right. And so we had to reframe what we thought of as success okay. for that type of interaction and, and with, is, with that audience. And is that is that still the, the case? That, you know, that they'll come in and then they'll go away because they don't want to be seen to be talking to the government? I'm not sure today. Right. So this was some sort of years, years ago, ago now. Yeah. Um, but that, that for me, was my first um, yeah. kind of realisation yeah. moment about, you know, that yeah. the, the way that people want to deal with government is different to how government might think that that should occur and yeah. and that was a, a good example so I don't know if it's changed today and probably um, students are using Facebook less and they're hanging out elsewhere yeah but um you know it, yeah I guess it gives us uh, it gave us pause to, to think you know what is the measure of success what are we hoping to achieve and actually that was a really legitimate outcome for the effort yeah. that we were putting in yeah excellent um now listen you are your day job at the moment is that you are the head of digital experience at the australian war memorial and you've been as i say um when we last caught up i was fascinated by some of the work that you were doing out there which i thought was um just really right on the edge of it all and making it happen. Um, perhaps for the audience, which is a global audience, maybe just if you would just describe the Australian War Memorial and what it is and what you're doing there as the head of digital experience. So the Australian War Memorial is uh, a museum 
yep. and we pride ourselves on being a world-class museum that's dedicated to telling stories about Australia's military history. We're also an archive, so we hold thousands of records and collection items that help tell that story. Um, and we're a shrine. So um, at the centre of the memorial is the tomb of the unknown soldier, um, which is a really um, sacred place at the memorial, but also um, in the uh, hearts of Australians, really, when it comes to commemoration about those who've served in war and conflict and, and those who perhaps haven't returned home. Uh, so it's... Uh, been really exciting actually to be able to work there the last couple of years and deliver some engaging interactive experiences and to work on uh, you know virtual reality and um, you know interactive 360 content in a way that I haven't uh, experienced before so it's been great I've been able to lead those projects and definitely learn on the job as well uh, so one example is um, a virtual reality experience that we delivered for the 100th anniversary of the Battle of Hamel. So it was in the First World War. Um, on the 4th of July, it was the first time that Australians and Americans had fought side by side. Um, it was in France. And uh, yeah, we decided to use virtual reality to immerse people in that time um, on the battlefield and to get a small window into, into what it may have been like to be there at that time. And that's a really difficult ask. Um, to do that in a way that is uh, respectful and um, has, you know, an appropriate tone of, you know, learning and education and commemoration rather than, um, you know, having a video game style element, which uh, I think virtual reality can stray into that um, quite easily if, if you aren't sort of focused on the outcome. And so we decided to use uh, an artwork from our First World War galleries as um, the inspiration for that. And so we immersed people in in the battlefield, but um, they felt as though they were in a, in a painting and experiencing that um, through the stories of um, and diaries and letters of people who were there. Mm. So that was really successful. Um, and we delivered so that was an experience delivered on site at, at the museum. So yeah. to, to get that experience, you had to go to... Yep. The memorial here in Canberra. Yep. So you okay. could you could come in person uh, and we had up to 50 people in a theatre session at a time. But you can also, I mean, you can Google the Battle of Hamel VR um, in the Australian War Memorial and it's available on YouTube as a 360 video. So you can watch one of those experiences. Um, and we've got a couple of others we're working on that um, so that we're hoping to release it as an app um, where you can view all of these if you've got a headset at home. Hmm. What's your view on AR and, and VR? Is it, are we too soon? You know, as, as a consumer, not, certainly in the um, museum context and environment, I think it's, you know, applicable because you can control the environment, et cetera. But as a more, as a, say, a more general platform delivered more, more widely and more broadly, where, where do you see the maturity of, of AR and VR and what should people be looking at or staying attuned to so as that they know you know when they really could start to integrate it into some of their work i think for virtual reality uh one of the limitations has been the cost of hardware to purchase and yep. use at home so the prices have come down significantly in a way that makes it more accessible to people but as with anything the driver of adoption is you know the quality of content that you can get there so um 
you know, streaming services have exploded because, you know, there's a massive back catalogue of things that we want to watch on demand, as well as, um, you know, new things coming out all the time. And I think VR has been in a difficult point where perhaps the hardware has been too expensive so that people haven't invested a lot in content. Uh, but now that the hardware's come down in price, uh, there is more content being made, mm. but it's expensive to produce. Mm. So uh, if there's an, not an audience there, people won't spend money creating content. So it's sort of caught in a bit of a cycle mm. of, um, you know, what's but going to go 5G first. does 5G solve that? Does 5G, you know, start to accelerate the adoption curve because, you know, of the ubiquity you know, cloud, greater connectivity, faster speeds. I think potentially, yeah. Uh, at any time that there's that type of advance, advancement, mm. it really helps. Um, but I think for me, for us, you know, the, the cost of creating some of these things uh, and for um, other organisations and government more broadly, um, the cost of investing in VR is, is quite high compared to general video production. Yeah. And so I think that that's going to be a barrier for... Um, for the foreseeable future. Uh, For AR, I think that's got many more applications and we'll start to see that explode in the coming years because we now have, you know, in our hands, pockets, um, you know, a device that enables us to use AR within the world. And there are some great examples of it through gaming specifically that that, um, are already giving people um, they're increasing people's comfort level with mm. using AR so uh, that that's an area that we're looking to explore next uh, we haven't really done AR yet but we're quite keen to find some opportunities for that so mm. um, yeah keep an eye on the War Memorials AR <laughs> hopefully we come up with something soon <laughs> Um, listen, before I let you go, um, you're also the, the president of the uh, Canberra chapter of that wonderful organisation, the IABC, the International Association of Business Communicators. What are, you've seen, I think you've got the job for a year. What, what are you hoping to achieve in that year? And what does, the, what does the Canberra chapter need to help to continue to grow and mature the profession? This year has been such a, an interesting one to be president of, of IABC. So I'm really fortunate because we've got a good board of engaged people. Um, so a volunteer board of communication professionals that are really invested in um, expanding the comms network in Canberra. And I think I first joined IABC in Victoria um, for that reason, to, to try to meet other people who did the job I, I did, but without... Um, without, you know, necessarily talking to the same people at work that I talk to every day. I wanted to, to expand. And so when I moved back to Canberra, I moved my membership to Canberra and immediately found a new network of people. So I think that's the strength of this type of organisation. So we're keen to continue that this year. We've been trying to do that through online events. We took our midweek mingle drinks, which we do every month or two um, at a bar. We, we moved those online so you could bring a virtual wine and, uh, and have a chat. And that worked really well. Um, but what we're looking to do this year, our key focus is on uh, certification. So we're going to hold our first ever certification exams here in Canberra. So uh, what that involves is um, we're going to mentor people in Canberra to do the... Uh, gold quill. Well, no, so that the gold quills are our awards. The but, awards. Oh, but, okay, there's, but cert- there's, there's a, additional certification. Yeah, so that uh, it's done by the Global Certification um, Council. 
which was an IABC initiative um, early on, but is now an independent body. So you don't have to be a member to achieve certification. Mm -hmm. But what we're hoping to do is, I guess, give independent recognition to professional communicators um, for their skills and knowledge in the way that accountants have uh, a certification, HR professionals might have a certification. Um, We wanted to bring that to communications professionals in Canberra. So we've already got a couple, I think we've got three in Canberra already. And we've got um, about half a dozen that are keen to sit this year, including me. So uh, hopefully I pass in October. Uh, So There's a lot of work to, to get certification. Well, it's actually, um, it's two things. So you need to be able to give evidence of your experience in communication. So if you've been working in the field for a number of years and you've been advising to to clients or senior managers, then you'll be right. Um, And you need to provide that that evidence and paperwork, but you've already done the work in your career. So it's giving evidence of that. Well, you do as well. So the second part is an exam, which um, we're hosting in October. And uh, yeah, it's an online exam and it really tries to measure your depth of knowledge. So you can do some preparation and there's some practices, but um, but most of it is uh, just drawing on the expertise that you've, yeah, throughout your career. So. Um, Very good. Yeah. Well, that's good. I think certification is important and we, we can go down that path um, in another conversation that I'm sure we will have um, down the path uh, because I think the, that notion of a profession is very important um, to build and certification is obviously a key part of that as well. And I think, um, yeah, you know, mobility, you know, I, I think it enables all sorts of things, you know, including mobility. And I think, you know, one of the great lessons of COVID uh, inside the Australian Public Service has been that ability to activate and for people to be mobile, but it would be even enhanced further if, you know, outside of a crisis, if mobility and certification could help to, um, you know, move people around more effectively and where their needs are and where their skills will be recognised and acknowledged. And I think when it comes to whether you're a consultant in government, um, working in an organisation, a lot of discussion is about getting comms you know, a seat at the table when That's it comes right. to decision making. Out and of the colouring in department. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that certification provides that um, public acknowledgement of your experience in a way that's undeniable yep. um, and helps to elevate the profession. So, um, yeah. How I, can people find out a little bit more about that certification? So visit iabccanberra.com. Uh, or Google um, GCCC, which is um, the Global Certification Council through IABC. Okay, excellent. Amanda, thanks for coming in today. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed the conversation. I'll let you get back to all of these busy things that you are doing in your career. But ladies and gentlemen, what a fascinating conversation there from one of the outstanding communication professionals, not just here in Australia, but I think globally. There's no question that Amanda's skills are right up there and her experience Uh, through many, many roles over time. And to be involved in research, I think that's, you know, it's it's what we need more of. We need more interest and involvement, more understanding, so we can become more effective in the roles that we play. But fantastic for Amanda to come in today. And thanks to you for coming back once again. I'll be back at the same time next week with another fascinating guest. But for the moment, it's bye for now. You've been listening to the GovComs podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes.